You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, podcast listeners. Randy Bolander here. I am your host this morning as we dive into the third cup of coffee podcast. Hope that you are well on your way on your day today. It is September 2nd, 2020. Now, I understand that in the podcast world, it is bad form to announce the date because people listen to your podcast weeks after you record it, and all it does is accentuate the fact that they missed the boat. It is the same reason why you don't tell people what the weather is, because it's not radio. It's a podcast. But I feel compelled to tell you today, it is September 2nd, 2020, because it's the 20th anniversary of what is probably the most impactful day, spiritually, that Kelsey and I have ever had. And the way this all rolled out to me this week was just super interesting. Yesterday morning, I get up, I pour my first cup of coffee, so you know it's early. And I go and I sit on our covered porch for a moment of quiet with the Lord. And I pull out my Bible, and what I read is 1 Timothy 1.18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Other versions say wage war with the prophecies of your youth. Go back to the things that God did and said to you earlier and leverage those, not to strong-arm God, but to inspire you to live and do things differently. And as I read that, I realized it was September 1st, and tomorrow, which is today, if you're sufficiently confused, is September 2nd. 20 years ago today, 5.30 a.m., we leave the Phillips Hotel in Washington, D.C., and we walk a couple of blocks to the National Mall, And as we are walking there, the crowd, as we get closer, is getting thicker and thicker and thicker. People are coming up out of the tunnels that lead to the National Metro. People are coming down the side streets. They're arriving in buses. They're coming in fives and tens and groups of hundreds in some cases. And they're gathering on the mall to fast and pray for our nation. Now, back in those days, we barely knew the name Lou Engle. Uh, We had never heard of Jason Upton. We didn't know a lot of the faces that were on the stage that day. Later, we'd end up to know quite a few of them, but at that moment, they were really inconsequential. We were there for one thing. We wanted to do business with the Lord on behalf of our nation. And on that day, things came awake inside of us that we didn't even know were there. And I can honestly say that that day served to chart the course for almost everything we have done in the 20 years since then. Had we not gone to the call, I don't know that we would have moved to IHOP in Kansas City. Had we not gone to the call, I would have never gone to Burning Man. That was part of the package. Had we not gone to the call, we would not have many of the covenant friends that we have. But I think more importantly, had we not gone to the call, we would have never dreamed bigger than what we had at the moment. 
in the way of what God wanted to do in our nation and in our own lives. Now, have all of those things come to fruition? No. In fact, a lot of them have not yet panned out. But I am so stirred this morning on this anniversary of the call to believe again and to lean in and to press forward, not just for what he has said in the past, but for what he is wanting to say right now, for that really fresh sense of the presence of the Lord and his voice. September 2nd, 2020, I believe for more than I believed for 20 years ago. And I want to leverage that moment to encourage me to say, God, bring it on. And what do I need to do to align my heart so that I'm ready for it and it doesn't catch me off guard because I want to participate. I don't want to stand there and wonder what's going on. This morning, we have the teaching from our recent Sunday morning time together. I spend a few minutes in Psalm 52, how to respond when you're betrayed. If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 52. Um, we'll be moving around a little bit, but I would encourage you to just stay parked there in Psalm 52. We're going to be reading a slightly longer passage than we normally do. A lot of times we'll read a couple of verses and dive right in, uh, but we're going to read that entire Psalm. Now, it's only nine verses, but as we do, I just want you to kind of center your heart on that for a minute and let the words just kind of soak in us as a church family. You know, we all personally encounter God. But we also corporately encounter God. And as those with an evangelical view, we focus a lot on our personal relationship with Jesus, which we all have a huge regard for and we're all very grateful for. Certainly our salvation is a personal thing, but there is something to the corporate or communal aspect of hearing from the Lord. There are powerful things happen when we read the Bible together. God wants a people. I mean, he wants persons, but he also wants a people. And one of the ways we encounter him together is through the reading of the Word. There's this remarkable passage in Nehemiah 9, uh, very beginning of the chapter, where it says, On the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth, with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sin and iniquities of the fathers. What's going on here? This is actually revival. They are repenting, and they're separating themselves from those that don't follow God. But what triggered it? What triggered it wasn't preaching. What triggered it was they had discovered the lost books of the law, their portion of the Bible that they had in those days. And in chapter 8, they read through it, and it triggers something in their heart corporately, and they repent. So they repent in chapter 9, and then they go back and they read more of it in, in the latter part of the chapter. And with our emphasis on a personal relationship with Jesus, I don't want to miss that corporate encounter with the Word. So rather than just reading a couple of verses this morning, um, I've asked Mary Carnes if she would read Psalm 52 it's in, in its entirety so we can get the context, but also as a way of honoring God's written Word to us. Now be aware, there's some uh, some hard things in this chapter, things that sound strange if you don't know what's going on, but just trust the context, and I believe at the end of the morning it'll make sense to you. 
Mary, go ahead. All right. Psalm 52. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. God, we just thank you so much for each individual on this Zoom call today. We just pray that their hearts be open to your word. And we thank you for Randy and for the words he's about to preach about this passage. We just thank you so much for your steadfast love and your goodness. And we, we just love you so much. And thank you for this beautiful Sunday. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mary. Now, uh, our title this morning, for those of you that need a title, we're going to call this, Hey, Let's Do Confession. Now, uh, if you come from a Catholic background, that may like cause you to twitch a little bit because there's reasons you did not want to do confession. Uh, that's not what I'm talking about, okay? The, the last thing I want is uh, 40 individual Zoom meetings where you spill everything to me. That's not what we're talking about. Although there's something very powerful about speaking clearly about our sin before another person. James 5.16 tells us that if we confess our sins to one another and we pray for one another, that we'll be healed. I think we actually see, in some cases, uh, significant pain and significant uh, illness and trouble that continues because we're not clear with somebody about our sin. But we're not talking about the idea of Catholic confession, of confession of sin. Uh, we're not either talking about positive confession. Uh, when I say positive confession, I'm not talking just about positive speech. Of course, when we have the opportunity to say something positive or negative, speaking positively is almost always the better choice. But there is a small school of thought within the church that tells us that there is such power in our words that by speaking something out, it comes into existence. Now, God spoke the world into existence, so there is some element of precedent for this, but he was God. Declaring ourselves to be healthy, wealthy, and wise changes nothing if we're eating cheeseburgers, failing to budget, and acting like a fool. Like speaking those words out don't have any power over us. Positive confession that isn't based in truth is really just a happy lie, and I don't want to have to lie to myself to be happy. Even so, there are great wor uh, power in the words that we chose to speak. Have you ever found yourself in a difficult place in a relationship and thought, if I could just sit down and talk to them, I think I could steer this in a better direction. I think if we could just talk face to face. Your words can steer situations and people's reactions to them. Proverbs 15.1 tells us, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. If your words can steer someone else's heart, how much power do your words have over yourself? When we speak in agreement with what God says about us, or we speak influenced by circumstances or things around us, the, the outcome is very, very different. So this morning, I'm not talking about uh, 
personal confession of sin. I'm not talking about blind positive confession. I'm talking about what I would call positional confession or stating truths about our position before the Lord. Now think for a minute, what is the most important thing about you? If we were going to inscribe on a laser disc a couple of sentences about you, put it in a rocket and send it off in search of intelligent life in other universes, what would you want to put in those couple of sentences? Like what would you, you know, I mean, you wouldn't put your order at McDonald's. You would put something in, what would you want for, to consider the most important thing about you? A.W. Tozer was a pastor who died in the 1960s. He was a prolific writer, and he melded theology and pastoral insight in a really good way. If you ever get a chance to read A.W. Tozer, you really would enjoy him. It's interesting that he had literally no formal education. He later got two honorary doctorates, but he never, never sat in a Bible college class in his life. But he said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most important thoughts you have are not your coffee order or your kids or even about your destiny. Your most important thoughts are thoughts about God. And the most important thing about those thoughts is what is your position before him. Okay, if that's what I think about God, then what do, how do I relate to him? And the most important words that you say about yourself describe that position. When you start thinking and talking about God and your position before him, things like how many miles are on your car or what the electric bill was last month seem really inconsequential. Positional confession is looking at those thoughts about God and saying, these things are true. Either they're in my power to make them true, or they are inherently true because they're spiritual realities. But either way, saying them reminds me of them. And if I don't say them and do them, many of them are still true, but I might not live like they're true. And living out of alignment of truth always leads to death. We are called to walk in the light or walk in truth. That doesn't mean just being honest. It means conducting ourselves in agreement with what is the truth. Example, the truth is that in most places, the speed limit is 65, okay? Your acknowledgement of that truth will not help you if you pass a patrolman doing 90. When he says, did you know what the speed limit is? Yes, I knew it was 65. Okay, but you were out of alignment with that truth, and suddenly you have problems you did not have had you lived in alignment with what you knew to be true. 1 John 1, 7 says, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. So positional confession, walking in the truth of what God says about us and how we're supposed to conduct ourselves, leads to life in God. It is particularly valuable if you feel like you're in danger or your character is being maligned or if you are under some sort of attack, which leads us to Psalm 52. Now, short of understanding of the history of this, Psalm 52 is a piece of work because it almost feels like two passages entirely. The last two verses are David speaking about his position before the Lord, but the first seven verses feel like a complete rant. And they kind of are. 
David says, your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than you love good, more than you like lying, more than you like speaking what is right. God will break you down forever. Can you imagine a situation where you would say any of these things to anybody? You might think them, but would you say them? I've been in some heated meetings, but nobody's ever yelled at me, you love evil more than you love good. Or God will break you down forever. What is David ranting about here? Who's he talking about? Enter a character called Doeg the Edomite. If you're searching for baby names, Doeg the Edomite is not a, don't go that route, go another route. The psalm is introduced this way, with a little introduction before verse 1 starts. It says, To the choir master, a masculine of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. When he calls that a maskil, when he uh, phrases this psalm as a maskil, that is either a trained choir master or a form of presentation. He's saying how he wants this presented. With either definition, the end result is the same. David did not expect this for this to be a minor little quiet psalm for your quiet time. He meant for this psalm to be declared loudly, with skill, and with enthusiasm from a large choir in antiphonal manner. This is not your devotional CD of pan flute music, okay? This is like a Broadway production. He had emphasis behind this, and the first seven verses are about a guy you may have never heard of before because so little is said about him, but what is said about him in Scripture paints a really dark picture. Who is Doeg the Edomite? If you go all the way back to the time when Jonathan and David are hiding in the field, and with Jonathan's help, David flees from Saul because Saul is trying to kill him, we find that David ran to a place called Nob, where the high priest Ahimelech resided with his 85 priests and their families, and they're tending to the Lord there. And David rides into this camp with a small group of men, and Ahimelech has nothing to feed him. So Ahimelech feeds him the showbread out of the tabernacle. He's like, it's all we've got is this holy bread. He feeds him the holy bread, and Ahimelech asks him, what are you doing riding around out here with no weapons? And so he gives David a gift. This all takes place in 1 Samuel 21, verse 9. The sword of Goliath, the Philistines, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, here it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none like that here. And David agreed. He said, there is none like that. Give it to me. Now, the significance of this gift is huge. Because the mighty deeds of David's youth are coming back to him now to reward him. So much has happened in David's life. He's a young man here, but he's killed the lion. He's killed the bear. He was a paid musician in the king's court. It's rarer to be a paid musician than it is to kill a lion or a bear. But the one thing from his youth that never came to fruition was that the prophet Samuel anointed him as king as a young man. He was literally anointed as king and turned around and went back out to tend the sheep. And ever since then, he has played the servant's role, he has, and he's been beaten down for it. Now, Ahimelech hands him the spoils of his own fight as a younger man, the sword of the giant that he killed, and David is beginning to come into his own. He's receiving the rewards of battles that he has fought as a younger man. I only mention this because some of you fought battles years ago, and you never, ever received a reward for them. 
You did the right thing. You stood up for your truth. You maybe took a heroic stand on something and you might've even won in the moment. And then everything went back to normal. Having done the right thing, some people still looked down on you and you don't regret it. But most importantly, the Lord has not forgotten what you did. Those things were a part of your destiny. God doesn't waste those battles that you think meant, were meant for nothing. And he doesn't waste David's. He may send him to a, the wilderness for a while, but now David has the sword of a man that was nine feet tall. Now, David and the priest were not alone in that incident. There was another person there in the room. Again, it's 1 Samuel 21, 9. It says, Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Doeg the Edomite was called an Edomite. It's debatable. It could be for one of two reasons. He could be an Edomite. He literally could be from the land of Edom. And uh, he may have uh, offered to serve Saul in some way. The Edomites were considered treacherous. They were considered untrustworthy and essentially the enemies of the Hebrew people. But for whatever reason, he was in Saul's service. So he may have been literally an Edomite, or it might have been a nickname to him that it was assigned to him by others because of his character, which might have been full of treachery. Either one of these are not good. And as things plan out, you see that either one of these could be true. Either way, he is detained by the Lord. That one little verse would serve to set up David for significant headache because in the very next chapter, Saul is on a rampage looking for David, wanting to kill him, going person to person. Have you heard anything about David? Have you found David? Do you know where David is at? Nobody knows where he's at, but Doeg the Edomite raises his hand. He's like, well, actually, yeah. He says, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him, and he gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistines. Doeg betrays David. Now, it is not likely that David saw this coming. He didn't sneak in and sneak out. He must have had some level of trust with Doeg the Edomite, or at least that everyone was neutral, or they were willing to let God see how this all pans out. David did not expect betrayal. Let me tell you, you will not lack for Edomites in your life. People that you expect to hold confidences or to be loyal, who will turn on you. Over the course of decades, you will be betrayed. And it will be obviously by someone you didn't expect or you would have never trusted them. And in betraying you, they will call your character into question. It will place your safety in question, and you will find yourself saying and thinking things about them like David did in the first seven verses of Psalm 52. Nothing stings like betrayal. You can handle full-on assault from an enemy. Had Goliath taken a couple of whacks at David, I think David would have understood that. Had the bear left him with some scratches, that might have been understandable. But from David's actions there at the tabernacle, it would seem he would have been caught off guard by the betrayal of Doeg the Edomite. And the part that really weighs me down in 1 Samuel 21, 9, is it says that Doeg was there with Ahimelech that day, and the quote is, detained by the Lord. This bugs me. Because I want, to sell, I want to separate everybody out into all good and all bad, but yet it feels here like he was detained by the Lord, 
for a season so that he would see what was going on, that the sovereignty of God worked so that Doeg the Edomite would be there, thereby giving him the opportunity to betray David. Now, betrayal is not of the Lord. But everything that God does is to position us for our good, and he never wastes a difficult time in our life. In fact, he even has a hand in allowing them with the deep desire that we would press past the difficulty, asking the deeper questions about who he is and who we are in relation to him. He's not behind betrayal, but he is behind using betrayal for our good. So Doeg the Edomite begins to show his character. He doesn't just target David. Those who betray you have it in their character. It's often not about you. They often leave a swath of bodies behind them. In a fury, Saul commands all of his guards to kill Ahimelech and all of his priests, these 85 priests that he has with him. And Saul's elite guard, who apparently have some fear of the Lord in them, refuse to do it. So Doeg the Edomite steps in and he says, no, no, I'll, go, I'll, I'll do this. He volunteers to do this and he kills them all. Then he goes on to kill all of their families and kill all of their livestock. In light of this betrayal and then the murder of the 85 priests and their families, that's the context for which David writes Psalm 52. Scholars agree that at the beginning of that verse, when David says, why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? He is using O mighty man with sarcasm. What kind of a mighty man murders 85 defenseless priests and their families and then goes on to kill their livestock? He is saying to Doeg, you're not mighty, you're weak, you're broken. You'd rather lie to tell the truth and your day is coming. I know if you have been betrayed, it feels very personal and it feels very internal. It feels like it's about you and who you are and how people see you, but it's not. The person who betrays you, again, is probably leaving an entire swath of bodies like that because their character is bent towards that. It's not even about you. It's about their own brokenness and their own darkness of heart. Doeg doesn't just betray David. He doesn't just kill all the priests and the families. For a season, Doeg haunts David in David's own thought life. David actually takes some responsibility for this. In later verses, he said, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, he would surely tell Saul, I should have known it, I should have expected, I should have done things differently. The work of a betrayal is so manipulative that when the dust settles, they leave the one who was betrayed feeling guilty about what happened. There's an interesting thing in criminal studies when oftentimes a victim of a crime will take on responsibility and feel like it was partially their fault, particularly if it's someone who hurt them who was very close to them. And in this case, David does this. He's like, oh, maybe this was partially my fault. It is an act of spiritual warfare when you have been betrayed to say, you know what, I'm going to think about something else for a while. I'm not going to take on the guilt of this. Let me encourage you, if you have been a victim of somebody else's betrayal, the most powerful thing you can do is let it go rather than to continue to turn it over and over and over in your head and in your heart. As he wrote Psalm 52, David seems to put Doeg in God's hands. He writes, God will break you down. If God has promised to settle our accounts, 
we are released from the responsibility of bringing justice for ourselves. Some of you look back at the darkest seasons of your life and you think that it was your fault, even though clearly it was somebody else doing this to you. Hear me, it was not your fault. And even if part of it was your fault, there is forgiveness in Jesus and accepting him and accepting grace from him puts you in a different relational context than what you were before. And you need to focus on that relational context rather than what happened. The health, healthiest thing you can do is follow David's example and do some positional confession, speaking truth to your own heart and to every demon swirling around you in order to bring yourself into alignment with life and in truth. In the closing verses of Psalm 52, which is really the pot of gold here, because these are the verses that make a difference. These are the things that we need to speak over ourselves. Verses 1 through 7 was essentially David saying, I told you all this so I could tell you why it's important to say these things. And he makes three positional statements of confession in these last three verses. Three I am or I will statements. Psalm 52, verse 8. But I am like an olive, a green olive tree in the house of the Lord. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. He identifies himself as an olive tree in the house of God. What, what does that mean, an olive tree in the house of God? He's not speaking literally here. He's not, I'm a tree now. This is me. It's not what he's saying. But there is a literal part to this. The house of God is the tabernacle. He's hearkening back to the moment when he was in the tabernacle with Ahimelech and Doeg was there. And Doeg lies on, lays eyes on him and later betrays him. And he's speaking about his longevity in that place before God. The olive tree is one of the longest living trees on earth and certainly in the region of the Middle East. The al-Badwali tree in Bethlehem, which is there to this day, is estimated to be between four to 5,000 years old. When King David was a boy, it would have been old then. He was raised in Bethlehem. Chances are he saw this tree that you can lay your eyes on right now. Why all of this talk about old trees? Because David's statement, I am an olive tree in the house of God, meant I am here for the long haul. There will be battles. There will be floods, there will be fires, but when the battle's done and the flood recedes and the fire passes over, you know what? I'm still standing here before the Lord. I'm still standing before the Lord for the long haul. Now, Friday night, uh, we met for prayer, and our prayer team, uh, we opened up on Twitter for any direct messages for prayer requests. And uh, it was really, it was a great idea. We ended up with praying for several folks uh, nationwide, uh, by the time the night was over, I was still getting prayer requests. We prayed for people from Los Angeles to New Jersey. It was great. And one of the initial prayer requests we got was from a friend of mine, Chris Bennett. Chris pastored uh, Antioch Church in Norman, Oklahoma. And about 18 months ago, he and his family moved to Los Angeles. Uh, he and his wife, Julie, I would say Chris is probably in his early 40s. They've got four kids, three teenage boys and a little girl. Shortly after they get to Los Angeles, Julie contracts cancer, and uh, she had chemotherapy, had a real rough go to, way to go, seemed to recover somewhat, and the minute I opened up the prayer request line, I got a, a message from Chris, and let me just read the message to you. He said, Julie is battling her second bout with cancer. We did some alternative treatments this summer that didn't work. It's in her lymphatic system. 
but it hasn't spread to any organs yet, praise God. We're believing for miracle healing. If not, she'll have to go back and have chemo again. Would you please pray for a miracle? So we prayed over Julie, and we prayed out of this passage in Psalm 52, of, Lord, would you make Julie an olive tree in the house of the Lord? And I messaged Chris later because he wasn't on the line. I messaged him and said, hey, this is what we prayed for Julie. He responded immediately. He goes, that is amazing. God has given us two different people in the last week with words and dreams about my wife being an olive tree. And just a friend just brought us an olive plant for our bedroom. We are praying for longevity for Julie, that she would be an olive tree in the house of the Lord. David's statement of, I am an olive tree, was a statement to the Father that he was in this for the long haul. He was not going to be discouraged. He was not going to be dissuaded. He was going to conduct himself with integrity before God because he was going to be chased off of his positional place before the Father. As long as you are thinking about quitting, as long as you are entertaining quitting, you're quitting. You just haven't decided when yet. David said, I'm deciding I'm not quitting. My position before the Father is as an olive tree. And he goes on to say, I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. This is in direct contrast to his remarks about Doeg the Edomite. He said, I don't trust Doeg as far as I can throw him. There is nothing about Doeg that I trust for a moment. But I do trust in my Father. He knew that he could trust God, and if he put down deep roots he could stay there. He said, I trust myself and I trust the Lord to make me an olive tree in his house. Do not transfer your justifiable mistrust of other people to an unjustified mistrust of God. Don't transfer your justifiable mistrust of other people to an unjustifiable mistrust of God. Look hard at his hand in your life. He is not the one who's betrayed you. He is the one that has always sustained you. If you are alive after all you've been through, it's because of his hand on your life. You can be an olive tree in the house of the Lord forever. The benefits of that are overwhelming. I was talking with some folks this week about the idea of longevity and how for all of us somewhere there is a number and that number strangely is not counting up. Nobody has more days today than they had yesterday. And some of you in your 20s and 30s, it's hard to even get your head around the idea that that number is finite. You just don't think of life that way. And then you get into your 50s and you, you come to a realization that, no, there is a, a hard and fixed number somewhere. And I may have decades left yet, but there is a number. And then you get older and older and you realize that number is, is counting down and you, you're not sure. But if you saw it, you would guess there are maybe even fewer digits in the number than there used to be. And the question is, with that number counting down, what do you do? Do you sit and just wait to run out the clock? What a miserable existence. Not if you're an olive tree in the house of God. The same David who wrote that phrase about being an olive tree in the house of God compared the righteous to trees in Psalm 52. In Psalm 52, 13 and 14, he said, they're planted in the house of the Lord and they flourish in the courts of God. They still bear fruit. In their old age, they are ever full of sap and green. Understanding what David meant about trees when he said that, David said, I'm an olive tree in the house of God, and I'm going to bear fruit every day of my life till the very end. Then he makes another I will statement. He says in Psalm 52, 9, I will thank you forever because you have done it. 
David easily could have thought about betrayal for the rest of his life. He wouldn't be the first person to die bitter in their anger. But following his commitment to stay put as an olive tree before the Lord, he said, this is going to be my primary function before you, Lord. It is to give thanks for your continued goodness in my life. Now you can read that and go, goodness? Like he was just betrayed. He was sold up the river. They lied about him and they put his life in danger. David said, yeah, that's all true, but I'm choosing to focus on the grace of God in my life because there's more power in focusing on his grace than on my bad fortune at the hands of unrighteous people. Why let them do any more damage to me than they already have? Why not focus on the good that God's done in my life? Focusing on the betrayal in your life will destroy your confidence. Focusing on the grace of God in your life will build confidence. As you realize that your position as an olive tree in the house of God, rather than a scrubby bush that you are portrayed as by somebody else, is the true meaning of who you are. Being grateful is a supernatural way of demonstrating that all of those people who betrayed you were wrong. It's not revenge. It's taking the position that God would have you take. Not of someone who's been beaten down, but somebody who stands in righteousness before him. And those who betrayed you will say, well, yeah, but you're not perfect. Well, that's true. But I'm grateful before my father. Yeah, but you messed up. Yeah, that's true. But I'm grateful before my father. Do you understand the fiery darts that gratitude can deflect? Yeah, some of that's even true about me. But I'm grateful for the grace of God in my life. There is a person who discovers power when they commit to and walk out the idea of being grateful. Grateful destroys shame in your life. Grateful dismantles fear in your life. It places you in the one position before the Father that you have control over, which is on bended knee. When God looks at you and realizes that you have assumed a rightful position with Him, His heart is deeply moved on your behalf. Because you weren't beaten into submission, you bowed your head by choice. Do you know what it does to the heart of the Father when children do the right thing of their own volition? It's like angels sing when kids do what you wanted them to do without having to be told. People of gratitude see more activity of God. Yes, he visits the broken and the weary, whether they're strong or they're weak or clear and confused, but the grateful capture more of what he is doing in people's lives. Psalm 107 is dedicated to the attraction that God has to a grateful heart. David didn't necessarily write the psalm, but he would have been aware of it. And it says in verses 8 and 9, Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works, to the children of man, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. When David says, I will thank you, he knows that it's the way forward that will attract the most activity of God in his life. Say, like, God, I'm an olive tree. I'm here for the long haul, and I will give thanks to you. And in giving thanks to you, that will sustain me. And then he makes this final I will statement. He said, I will wait for your name. This is back in Psalm 52. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. Keep in mind, as he writes this, he still has betrayal ringing in his ears. If you've ever had anybody turn on you unexpectedly, you know this. You replay that setting in your head over and over again, trying to figure out how it could have been different. 
When you were betrayed, you think about it and think about it. Think, how could I, maybe if I did, what, I, what, what about all this? David surrenders that. He says, Lord, I'm just going to sit with you. I will wait for your name. And it goes totally against our base instinct. When we are attacked, we want to defend, we want to press back, we want to clarify, we want to go make sure everybody knows what really happened. David says, you know what's better than winning? Speaking the truth about myself and God. My thoughts about God and how I relate to Him. Life is better in God's presence in right relationship with Him than it is in the arena that you were doing battle and wanted to win in. And he said, when I am betrayed, I'm just going to declare, I am an olive tree in the house of the Lord. I will give thanks to Him, and I will wait for His vindication and I will trust in him. Now, you know the story of David. All of those things came to pass. David became a powerful king. At this moment, he wasn't. But God panned all of those things out because David was more intrigued with his position. He realized the most important things about him were his thoughts about God. And the most important things about those thoughts were how he related to God and how he spoke about him. So this morning as we close, let me just encourage you. If you have suffered at the hand of someone and many of you have, all of us have. The key to walk that out is not always to clear the air. Sometimes the air cannot be cleared. But the thing that you've got to do is focus on your position before the Lord and make these declarative statements and then walk them out, not just recognize them as the truth, but, but walk in them. I'm going to be an olive tree in the house of the Lord forever. I'm going to be grateful. I'm going to rely on His grace rather than deal with someone else's treachery for the best of my life. And I'm going to wait on him to walk these things out. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. I want to remind you that The Bridge is going to be meeting live, in person, outdoors, September 27th at The Barn at Riverbend. Go to thebridgekc.church for more info. Have a great day.